We've been in a series called It's Complicated, and we've been looking at the complex nature of human existence in the 21st century here in Silicon Valley, and it's been a really helpful conversation. And part of what we've been doing, actually the majority of what we've been doing, is we have been looking at the life of a guy named David who lived about 3,000 years ago, and who, like many of us, probably could not be fully understood based on one season of our life. Uh, So we've been learning about David over the course of his life. And we learned that as a young man, David was a shepherd, and that typically meant that he had low social standing. But at the time, it didn't really matter to David because he was just following God faithfully, and God was forming his heart and his character and his life in the quiet hills of the Israelite countryside. And then we learned that in another season of David's life, he became this unlikely hero. He went from a low social standing to gaining and earning the respect of the entire Israelite army when he defeated this champion warrior named Goliath. In another season, David became this great military leader. They found out that he had like this great mind and was successful on the battlefield and, uh, and, had this, and earned a reputation about what he was able to do in, in the middle of a war. Uh, in another season of David's life, it took this unexpected turn when he started having conflict with the king of Israel, whose name was Saul. And in one season of their relationship, they were partnered up, accomplishing great things. And then in another season, Saul turned against David. And for 10 years, David lived like a fugitive on the run. And then when Saul died, David became king, and he experienced a season of prosperity in his life. David did as a king what nobody thought was possible. We're going to change the mic. All right. Rick, how's that? All right, even better. I'm going to take this off. I'm going to pull it to the top here. Beautiful. My collar up. Don't want that to be a distraction. Okay. And then we see in another season of David's life where he became king, uh, and he did what nobody thought was possible. He brought together two kingdoms. He returned the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. He restored the dignity of Israel. He strengthened their economy. He expanded their geographical footprint. Israel became one of the most dominant kingdoms in the world because of God's anointing on David's life. D.L. Moody, who was a great evangelist a few generations ago, he was once asked, he said, can you imagine what God would do with someone who was fully devoted to him? Well, that was David's life. And all of the blessing in David's life pointed back to this consistent characteristic about who he was since he was a young man. Chapter 13 of 1 Samuel said that David was a man after God's heart. In other words, what he was saying, the author was saying is that David had this unwavering commitment to God, season in, season out, year after year, decade after decade. Recently, I had a friend who became uh, the senior pastor of the church that planted Eden several years ago. Their pastors retired, and so they brought him in uh, as part of a team to lead the church. And they asked if I would shoot like a short little promo video just talking about our relationship over the last 20 years. And so I had a little bit of time to like pause and reflect about this person's life. And it was pretty amazing to to think about when I first met them and to see how they were growing in their relationship with God and how for 20 years they had this unwavering faithfulness to God. And that's not to suggest that any season of their life was easy 
or that any part of their story was perfect, but it was this powerful testimony of what it looks like to be in a long obedience in the same direction, but that was David's story. He's the only person in the entire Bible that was ever described as someone after God's own heart. And this is what David learned, is that no matter how complicated David's life got, David knew his best option was to always trust in God. And I don't know about you, but I love David's story. It's an underdog story. It's a rags to riches type story. And deep down in your heart, you hope that David's story will end the same way that it began, but it doesn't. And today we're going to read about one of the great failures that derailed David's life. And so we're going to do that by picking up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And they destroyed the Ammonite army, laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So springtime was wartime in the ancient world. David was the king of a united Israel. And whenever a country or a kingdom is elevating themselves in terms of their global status, chances are there's going to be conflict with neighboring armies. And over and over again, Israel continued to defeat every army that came against them, including the Ammonites. But what was interesting about this last conflict that the author notes is that for some reason, David refused to go to battle. And this is an important distinction that the author makes. He says, when all the other kings normally go out to war, David chose to stay behind. Now, we don't know the motivation because the author of the book does not indicate any of the motivation behind David's decision making. But sometimes you can read behind the behavior. And oftentimes in a relationship, when you see a shift in someone's behavior, it's a picture that there has been a shift that has taken place in their heart. Whenever my kids come home with a bad attitude or they're not listening the first 10 times, I realize there's probably something going on in their heart. There's a shift. Something was shifting in David's heart because he started neglecting key responsibilities that he had as a leader that he never neglected before. Imagine being on his team. And thinking he is sending us out to a war that he does not care enough to lead. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But we're going to see what this one decision leads to in David's life. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 2. The verse after uh, the one that we just read. It says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed that there was a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. So David wakes up from his siesta, which, you know, the older I get, the more I need naps uh, in the early afternoon. And so David is taking a nap. He gets up, and he goes out for a walk on the rooftop of his palace, and he notices that there's this beautiful woman that is taking a bath just outside his property. And at this point, at this point, if we assume the best of both people, we could just say that this was one of those scenarios where you end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. I have a friend who one time went to get a massage, and it was not the type of massage he thought he was going to get. And as soon as he realized that, he got up, got his stuff, took off, got out of that place. It was a case of wrong place, wrong time, no harm, no foul. 
But the problem with assuming that about the nature of this relationship between David uh, and Bathsheba is that they're just, the details don't suggest that. We have to ask a few questions. Why was Bathsheba bathing in the middle of the day right outside the king's quarter? It doesn't say that David had a telescope. She was visible from his palace. You think she was unaware of that detail? Probably not. On David's end, how did he know that she was beautiful? How long did it take for David to look at this woman to come to that conclusion? Why did he bring her into his palace after he knew that she was a married woman? Something else was going on here. And this is what you may learn about temptation over time, is that temptation is the desire to act on something outside of God's best for our life. Your way instead of God's way. But we also learn that temptation in and of itself is not sinful because we know that Jesus was tempted and yet he lived a sinless life. I remember when my wife and I were dating and uh, we were getting closer to the wedding day. Um, She's beautiful. And at the time I was a young stallion and the temptation was strong. The temptation was strong. And I remember the hardest part of, uh, of the whole thing because we had gone into the relationship saying that we were going to no sex before marriage. We were going to stay pure and, and make sure uh, that we were going to honor that commitment because we believed that it would be the best plan for us uh, moving forward into the life of our marriage. But it, the temptation got so strong. At some point, we had to ask her mom the week before the wedding. We said, do not leave us in a room alone together. Okay? We do not trust ourselves. But this is what we learned in that season. We learned that with temptation, there was always a moment where you think, even if just for a second, this doesn't feel right. I shouldn't be doing this. We're going too far. And in that moment, you have a choice to either keep moving toward temptation or to take a step back from the situation. David kept moving toward his temptation. The moment that David chose to look a little bit longer. The moment that David told his men to go find out who she was. The moment that he invited her to his palace. These were all little steps of compromise that eventually led David to sleep with a married woman who was not his wife. And what David learned is that sin will grow over time. At first it starts off as one small compromise, and then another, and then eventually it takes you somewhere that you, ne- somewhere that you never wanted to go, and it causes you to become a person that you never wanted to be. And we're going to see how this escalates in David's life. Later, David finds out that Bathsheba became pregnant. David tries to cover up the adultery, so he calls her husband Uriah back from the war so that he would sleep with his wife. But the problem is, is that David underestimated uh, Uriah's level of character. He was such an honorable person that he said, I'm not willing to sleep with this woman while my fellow soldiers are still on the battlefield. And so David was left with one option. The only way that he could cover up his sin was by sending Uriah to the front lines of the battlefield where he knew that he would be killed. David became something that he never thought that he would become. And it's so sad because David knew what it was like to have a king threatening your life. David became to Uriah what Saul was to him. And he never imagined that this one little decision would lead to a series of decisions that would eventually derail his life. 1 Kings chapter 15 gives a reflection about David's life. 
Verse 5. It says, For David had done what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and obeyed the Lord's commands throughout his life, except in the affair concerning Uriah the Hittite. No matter what anyone said about David's life from this point forward, they could not talk about his life without mentioning this great failure of his. And I think that if we were being honest, chances are we, we could probably do, most of us do a quick Google search about some of the leaders in our context and read headline after headline of story similar to the story of David. But the other truth is that it probably wouldn't be hard for us to look back at our own lives and find how ourselves, how our lives connect with David's story. And it may not be exactly the same circumstance, but we all know what it's like to keep doing the things that we don't want to do and watching it slowly derail our life. Many of us have watched our sin derail important relationships. Many of us have watched our sin cost us opportunities or derail our faith or destroy our confidence behind the scenes. We have watched unaddressed sin in our lives continue to grow. So the question is then, what do we do? What do we do if we've come to this place in our life where sin has derailed our life? Look at what happens for David. David had a friend named Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. And God had revealed to Nathan what David did. And so David pro approaches, uh, Nathan approaches David confidently, and he confronts him about what he did to Uriah. And I don't know if you've ever been in a moment in your life or a season in your life where you had to confront someone that has authority and power over you. It's kind of scary because you don't know how they're going to respond to your words. And Nathan, maybe more than anyone else, had more to risk than anyone else. David could have ended his life, but he chose to confront him anyways. And we look and see David's response in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 13. It says, David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I love David's response. He was found out. And if you've ever been confronted in your life, you know that there are a number of ways that you could respond. First, you could try to deny it. You could act like there's no problem and try to move on the best you can. You can lie about it, and you can try to act as if it never happened so that you can maintain your, uh, the perception you've carried in the world. Number three, you can attack and blame. You can try to make someone else the problem instead of acknowledging your role and responsibility. But the best way to respond when we are confronted about our sin is to repent. And that's exactly what David did. He confessed that he was wrong. And what's interesting and powerful about the word repent is it literally means to be going in one direction and then to go in the opposite direction. David didn't lie. David didn't hide. He didn't try to attack. He didn't make excuses. He just confessed. He confessed where he was wrong. And I just think about the nature of David's life at this season. It's, I imagine that he was living under the horrific weight of guilt and shame that as soon as Nathan brought this to his attention, David was like this bubble ready to burst because of the pressure that he was under. Because when you look at the trajectory of David's life, he had been so faithful to walk with God. And this may have been the first time 
that David had chosen to live outside of God's best for his life, and the weight of that was crushing to him. In Psalm chapter 51, we have a chance to read a record of David's prayer as he confessed his sin to Nathan. Psalm 51, it says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This was a broken man, broken before God. And I love the way that David frames his confession to God. It's just as if David was saying, God, my sin is great, but your love is greater. My transgressions were bad, but your compassion is bigger. And because of the power of your love, my sin no longer has to define my life. David was desperate. Maybe for the first time he had broken that fellowship with God and he could feel the distance from him and God. And that is the problem with sin. Today we've introduced a word that maybe was used a lot more regularly uh, in the past, this word repentance. It may feel old and archaic, but the point of the word is about restoring relationship with God because that is what sin destroys. It destroys our connection with the creator of the universe, the person who is for us more than anyone else in our life. It begins to break down our ability to communicate clearly with God. It creates distance from us and him. It creates darkness in our heart. It causes us to go places that we never wanted to go and to become people that we never wanted to be. I remember early on in our marriage, not that early on, but earlier, uh, we had been planning a family trip with my wife's family, and, uh, and we were all going to go to the beach, and we were going to be at a house together for several days. It was supposed to be a really good time. And then what happens on occasion is sometimes you act out of character, which is what was happening to me right before the trip, and we got into a really big argument. And it was such a big argument that I decided I don't even want to be around your family. All right? I don't even want to see your family. And so I told my wife, I said, we're not going. And then you use this really dumb line, once you have kids, and my kids are not going either. Okay? That's where you cause problems. And I said that line, and my wife was just distraught, was feeling bad. So she calls her mom, and she says, hey, we're not going to be able to go on the trip. We're just trying to deal with some stuff, and we're so sorry we had to cancel last minute. We were literally packing to drive to the trip. A few hours go by, and my wife and I, we kind of figure out what's going on, and we come to a resolution. And so we decide to go, even though I was so embarrassed about how I was acting and behaving, but I thought we had been planning this trip, and I know that everybody is feeling sad that we didn't go. And so we pack up the stuff, and Kayla calls her mom, and she says, hey, we're heading over to the house, and we'll see you guys soon. And I just remember feeling so embarrassed about how I was acting, and I knew that they had some idea that I was the problem. 
which is a reoccurring theme in my life. But I remember when we pulled up to the house and my kids were so excited and they run out of the car and Kayla's mom walks through the door and she gives the kids a big old hug and she kisses them and she grabs their bag and then I remember I see her. And I just walk up to her and I say, Jane, I'm so sorry for all the drama. And she gives me the biggest hug and she brings me close into her arms and she says, oh, Daniel, I'm just so glad that you guys are here. Sometimes we stay distant from God because we think that our sin is too great for God's love. But what we learn about the process of forgiveness and confession and repentance is that as soon as we are ready, all God wants to do is to bring us into his arms and he is telling us, I'm just so glad that you are here. God is not standing there with a list of all the things that you have failed in in life. He is celebrating the fact that you were willing to step out of the bondage that you were living under. And the power of repentance is that you get to experience God's unfailing love. I don't know if that has ever happened to you in life where you had to confess something to someone and you knew that what you were about to confess was going to break their heart. And when you told them, all you received on the back end of your confession was grace and mercy and love. That is what God desires for all of his children, to, bring, to be brought close. Look at what 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. God says if we would just humble ourselves, if we would come to this place in our life where we could, can admit that we are not strong enough on our own to overcome what has been patterned in our life for decades, we need the power of God's Spirit to transform us from the inside out. And there have been so many of us who have been on the journey and we have been fighting week after week and month after month and year after year, living in isolation with our sin, thinking that if we just work hard enough or will it hard enough, we can figure it out. But what others of us have learned is that there are some things that have us in such deep bondage in our life that it takes the power of God's Spirit to set us free. I don't know where you are today, but I know that there are some of us who have been living under the weight of our own sin. We have been living under a heavy load that you know you cannot bear any longer. But this is the beautiful part of it, is that you were never meant to carry it alone. The good news is that scripture says that if we are faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive. That's the gospel. The good news is that no matter how far you've wandered off from God, no matter how much space you've allowed for 
it to create between you and him, you were only one prayer away. And I know that every person in this room, I don't care how good you looked when you walked in, every single one of us is fighting a battle somewhere in our life. And there are some of us today that have showed up and there is such a heavy tension on our hearts because we have been trying to do it our way instead of God's way. But God is inviting you into an opportunity this morning to say, trust me. He's saying, trust me with your pain. Trust me with your problems. Trust me with the trial that nobody knows you're going through right now. Trust me with your failures. Because with me, there was only victory. And today I want to give us an opportunity as a church to step into this moment where we just say, God, I'm done with trying to figure it out myself. I'm ready to give it up to you. I'm ready to trust that you can do more with my problems than I can. And I'm going to stop trying to control it. And I'm going to trust Because this is the alternative, is that you hold it in and you continue to live in isolation the way that you have been for years. And it's not that nothing will change, the reality is that it will grow worse and the problem will get bigger and the neural pathways will get deeper. Today is about stepping into freedom, the freedom that only God provides with his spirit and his power. And so as we sing this last song, this is an opportunity for all of us, not you, not people who showed up and who didn't serve this morning, for every single person. For those of you who are tuning in online, it's an opportunity to do some work with God and to say, God, I'm ready to confess. I'm ready to repent. I'm ready to turn from the weight of these behaviors that have been piling on my life for years. I don't want any part of them anymore. So as this last song plays, I want to encourage you to have that conversation with God, to allow the words of these songs to sink deep into your heart. If some of you need prayer this morning, our prayer team is going to be standing at the back, and I know that they would love to pray for you. And and if some of you feel so compelled, I'm going to invite you to even come to the stage and allow for it to be this symbol of an altar. And an altar is just this really powerful symbol in all of scripture that allows for us to come to the feet of Jesus, to come into the presence of God and to lay our burdens down as this symbolic act of giving away what we can't control and trusting that God will do with it what we can't do. So I want to take this time to allow for God to do some work in our heart. And I want to encourage you to humble yourselves before the Lord and watch him work in your heart in a way that we could never do on our own.